Acts chapter 19, and we'll read together verses 21 through 41 as we continue um, our sermon series in the Acts of the Risen Lord Jesus. Chapter 19, verses 21 through 41, I invite you to stand out of respect for the reading of God's inspired word. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having been sent into Macedonia, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him, and even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Amen. You may be seated. In the year 1868, 10,000 rioters assaulted the British China Inland Mission where Hudson Taylor and his wife were living. And as we're told in Taylor's autobiography, the scene that unfolded there 
was riotous and was, was one that brought him great, great distress. Um, as these 10,000 plus rioters uh, lit a fire to the place when he was, where he was living and chased him and his six-month pregnant wife out of that place within an inch of their life, burning the home, chasing them away. And, and the reasoning was that a rumor had spread that Christians who were bringing this new fangled religion to China uh, were kidnapping children and killing them to make medicine. Well, there really isn't anything new with rioters and the madness of the crowds that surge against the Christian gospel. Uh, what, what Hudson Taylor saw in his day, Paul had seen thousands of years earlier. Paul saw crowds like this, and, and we, we hear of it in this text, a riot at Ephesus. Crowds driven by madness against the gospel. And it seems, in fact, that this is Satan's favorite counterattack when the gospel is making any progress. Notice that what we saw at the end of, our, uh, of last, sermon, last week's text was that in verse 19, a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together, burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Then that key phrase, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that phrase in chapter 20 is one that we hear 10 times throughout the book of Acts. And it seems that every time we hear it, it's, first of all, followed by great growth in the gospel, but also a great counterattack by Satan. You see, friends, when the gospel is growing, when it's making progress, it seems that Satan's favorite thing to do is to launch some counterattack, usually in the form of a riot of a crowd that seeks to purge the gospel from the midst of the people. And I have to wonder about today. Because although we live in a land where uh, we have uh, many protections that our brothers and sisters in China do not have, uh, yet we, we live in a land in which I've seen in, in a concerning way, at least on social media and, and on the news screen, that more and more and more Christians are being seen as a scourge in this land and getting in the way of, of progress. I wonder if we'll see a counterattack of Satan. In fact, if we've already started to see counterattacks of Satan as the madness of the crowds gathers and seethes against the gospel. Do not be shocked when you see that. We have to be prepared and we need to, to understand what, what to make of these crowds when they surge. I want us to look carefully at the riot in this text, to study it well, to understand it. And then I want us to see that the madness of the crowds, even when it's done its very worst, is not enough to stop the gospel. For when the madness of the crowds has done its worst, the gospel still goes on. That's what I want to commend to you, to encourage you with this morning. The madness of the crowds and the vindication of the church. Notice how the madness of the crowds begins here. Note, notice how this riot begins. It starts with a meeting of the silversmith trade union in Ephesus. This group of men 
uh, who, who have their various crafts and their arts in the city of Ephesus. And uh, what they were known for doing, the silversmith, uh, they made great sales of souvenir idols uh, that were little replicas of the uh, shrine to Artemis in the city. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand Ephesus. You have to understand that it, it was the home of one of the seven great wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, or she's also known as Diana. And they speak in this text of a stone that fell from the sky. Apparently, this was this black meteorite that fell um, and, and it struck the earth. And they took this thing and they crafted it into this grotesque idol where its head was a woman and the rest of it uh, was, was these, these symbols of fertility. Um, and this grotesque statue that they had carved out of a meteorite and placed deep within this magnificent temple structure uh, was what the people worshipped in this city. And if you came from far uh, to see the temple of Artemis, of course, what are you going to take home with you? Well, you, you want a little miniature temple of Artemis to take with you, right? To put on your, your bookshelf. Um, and that's what people would purchase in the city. The silversmiths would make a lot of money off of this, apparently. Um, I say apparently because when, when the shrine stops selling, their pocketbooks start hurting. This is apparently a main source of income. And when Demetrius uh, starts you know, doing his calculations for the year, uh, about to pay his taxes, he says, wow, I'm, I, 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 I sold a whole, lot, a whole lot less this year than the years in the past. And so Demetrius pulls together his fellow silversmith workers and says, we've got a problem here. I don't know if you guys have noticed that sales have gone down. There's a reason. It started when Paul started preaching the gospel. Three years ago, when he showed up and when we thought he was a nobody. Now look at three years later and what's happening. The message is spreading that Paul is saying. And, and he, it's summarized here. What's the message that Paul is saying? It's very short. It's the only time we really hear a defense of the Christian message in this passage. Very short. It's just this. Idols made with human hands are not gods at all. That's the thing that Paul says that is starting to turn people away from these silver shrines, away from these idols that the silversmiths are making, and to faith in the living and the true God who is not made with human hands. And Demetrius um, accuses Christians of threatening the economic and social order of society. He says, this is a great danger to us. Now, let me ask you a question. Is that true? Is that right? Is Christianity dangerous? Yes. Yes. Christianity is quite dangerous to idols. Uh, wherever the gospel goes, it confronts idols. It, 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 it ought to impact, in fact, the economy that way. Think about it. When the gospel comes and it says, you, you must be free from these worldly things that entangle you, that give you this false sense of security. And you must look your sin right in the eyes and you must go to a savior who can free you from the guilt of that sin. Not to idols, not to false senses of security, but to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the gospel did that, people start leaving behind these idols. And Demetrius loses 
substantial income. Friends, if Christianity is dangerous to idols and if the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, I want to say something clear here that the church ought to have that impact even today. On the economy, we ought to pray that the church would unify so much and shed itself of idols that it would actually be noticed that, that, that our economy would, uh, would push back and seethe because it's losing income on idolatry. Christians ought to, ought to spend their, we ought to spend our money in such a way that it reflects our commitments not to live by lies, not to participate in idolatry. And you know what an idol is when you try to take it away from the culture and it starts fighting and it starts kicking. Does not like it. And so when we see people in Dayton start to come to faith in Christ and repent of their, their, their lives of living, um, lives uh, numbed by drug addiction, then we should expect the drug dealers to start kicking back. Where, where is my income? And when we start to see people repenting and saying, I'm not going to participate in a culture of death. I'm going to turn away from the abortion industry. Then we should see doctors, respected doctors in our community say, where's my income? These are only the start of the ways in which the church starts to, in tangible ways, change the culture. They're a great danger to idols. You know, it's interesting. Governor Pliny, who wrote about 100 years, well, more like 70 years after Paul, he said, you know, when I look at Christians, I can't, and he, he himself was not a Christian, by the way. He says, when I look at Christians, they're good citizens. I can't find anything immoral they do. But they have this one bad effect. People have stopped going to the shrines. That's what Pliny said. He didn't like that Christians pulled people away from idolatry. And friends, we should proudly embrace that today. If, if, if our effect as Christians who love the Lord Jesus and, and preach a gospel of repentance is that... Uh, is that the economy starts to seethe and change because of us, then we're putting our finger on the right thing. We're pushing in the right places. We've got to preach more of Jesus there. Now notice how the crowd responds. Notice, in fact, how Demetrius works the crowd. If he just said, hey, you know, my pocketbook's hurting. I don't like this. He probably couldn't form much of a riot that way. But when he adds to that, this emotional appeal, and they're taking away our idols, then everyone starts to say, yeah, yeah, we're going to riot. Let's get together. And so uh, Demetrius, uh, the bottom line is that the gospel is changing his life. It's changing his way of living, and he doesn't like that. But he's able to work these people up into this emotional intensity where really what he's saying is, uh, let's not think about what Paul's saying. Let's not reason about this. Let's just rage against what they're trying to take away from us. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Come on, join me. Let's rant. And that's what they do. There's nothing reasonable about this crowd. There's nothing reasonable when it starts or where it ends. Demetrius is, he's a sly man. He knows what he's doing. 
He knows what people fear most. What do people fear most? That their idols, that their sense of security is going to be ripped out from their hands. Demetrius knows because he works every day with idols. He knows how they sell. And he has this unique window into knowing that people's hearts, as John Calvin says, are an idol-making factory. They just produce thing after thing after thing, which is, is, is to be worshipped apart from the worship of the true God and in place of the true God. Our hearts are idol-making factories. And so Demetrius points to Artemis that represents all the senses of security that Ephesus has wrongly placed. Hope in fertility, hope in, um, hope in the magic that she represents, hope in this idol. And so the crowd gets, gets ramped up over this. That Christians are taking away their idols. And what's the next thing that happens? We move from accusation to confusion. And you'll notice that as the crowd starts to assemble in verse 26, it it really forms a full-fledged riot. But here's what's interesting to me. Throughout this entire passage, Luke is just giving us speech after speech of non-Christians. And there's really just that one little place where Paul, where Paul is reported as saying something against idols. But for the bulk of this passage, we just hear non-Christian after non-Christian voice. Why is that? Why does Luke give us so much talking from unbelieving people and so little talking from Christians? Well, I think he's doing that in this passage to show us the foolishness of unbelief, the madness of the crowds. He's showing us that this isn't order, it's chaos. And so we see it happen before our eyes in this passage that the crowds, some of them are coming together. They don't even know what what it's all about. And they say, well, everyone else is is ranting. I'm going to join in. Everyone else is protesting and rioting. I'm going to jump in here. The crowds don't want to take a reasonable look at the gospel. All they know is that Other people around them are saying that the gospel is a threat. And so they're going to join in. And so they're all saying different things. And then slowly but surely, they start to join into one voice. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over and over again for two hours. And they thousands of them swarming through the city, rushing to the theater, taking over the theater, pulling some Christians into the midst, accusing them. The scene is really getting out of hands at this point. So much so that the city clerk, the president, has to step in and say, calm down, calm down. It's interesting that when you get to this point, Luke uses a word to describe this gathering, and it's the word ecclesia. It's the same word that's used to talk about the church of Jesus Christ. What's happening? This crowd, this rioting um, pool of people in Ephesus has become itself this religious experience, this church. And it's got its own liturgy, a back and forth, people, people uh, ranting, slogans. It's a church, but it's not a church of, the, of a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's a church of confusion. 
friends, what Luke is teaching us to do here, first of all, he's helping us to understand the madness of the crowds when it surges around us. He's showing us that these are not crowds that want to take a reasonable look at the gospel. These are crowds that are just angry that the gospel is, is calling them to change. Today, we see it. We see gatherings, churches, um, even though they don't call themselves churches, uh, religious gatherings of people whose slogans are my body, my choice, and love is love. Over and over again, for hours and hours, they will rant. And what Luke is teaching us to do is to look on these crowds and see the foolishness of unbelief, to see not order but chaos, But also, he's teaching us to look on the crowds with pity. For these are sheep without a shepherd. Or at least if there is a shepherd, it's a shepherd who is confusing them greatly. Luke is teaching us to look on the crowds that chant slogans around us and who oppose the gospel with their commitment to their idols with pity. The madness of the crowds. Do you see it? Do you see it in Paul's day? Do you see it in Hudson Taylor's day? Do you see it in our own day? Sometimes you just have to look at it and say, yeah, that's the same thing happening today. Because if you don't say it, you start to feel kind of crazy. And let me uh, share with, with those who are preparing to go to college Oftentimes, college is a place where this is, is front and center around you and you feel the pressure of the crowds. Join in. Shout our slogans. Join us. Worship our idols. And what you really need to do is you need to step back and look at the crowd and say, are they opposing the gospel for any reasonable charge? Or are they just raging against it because it's calling them to change and repent? By the end of this passage, we move from the madness of the crowds to the vindication of the church. There is good news in this passage. It's not just all about, look at how bad things are are out there. Look at the, the madness of the crowd swirling around us. By the end of this passage, what happens? It happens almost as soon as it formed, the crowd disperses. It's almost anticlimactic. It's just the city clerk stands up and he says, we need to break this thing up. And they, okay, everyone just goes back to their homes. And what we're really seeing is that after unbelief has shouted itself hoarse, the gospel goes on. Here's what one scholar says. In the end, all that heathenism can do against Christianity is shout itself hoarse. It's true. Of course, it can do a little bit more than that. It can scare us. It can persecute us. It can take away jobs, can take away human life. But in the end, the gospel goes on. And that's the hope of this passage. Notice that there's no reasonable charge against the gospel that could stick. Uh, Notice that that city clerk, he's the most important guy in Ephesus. He stands up and he he himself believes in Artemis. And yet he he has to almost embarrass the, the rioters and say, hey, I've got to stop you right there. Because guess what? 
I can't find any reasonable charge to, uh, to bring these Christians to public trial. But I am starting to find a charge to bring you to trial for rioting and bringing in disorderly conduct in the city. Notice, who is the danger to society? Is it Christians? No, Christians are dangerous to idols. The dangers to society are rioters who, who seethe and rage against the call to repent and believe the gospel. From the very beginning of Christian witness, it has been said over and over again that Christians are good citizens. This has been um, one of the greatest apologetics that Christians were able to bring before the Romans at the time. Look at us. We're not rioters. We're not killing people in the streets. We want to be good citizens. But we want to be citizens who call people to walk, turn away from false idols made by hands and worshiping meteorites that fell from the sky. And we want to call people to worship the living and the true God who has spoken in Christ Jesus. And we know that Jesus will make us good citizens. So the, the Christians here are not launching a counter riot. But they are being good citizens. It's the madness of the crowds that betrays that the greatest danger to society is not Christianity, but it's opposition. And so the city clerk says, you guys are actually the ones endangering social order. You got to break this up or I'm going to get in trouble with the Romans. What do we make of all this? Well, first of all, I hope that this passage is an encouragement to you, an encouragement to us, because friends, we do live in an age when we hear often and at various intervals, whenever the gospel starts to make progress, Satan launches his counterattack and he'll gather crowds and there will be slogans and there will be madness around us. And you start to wonder, am I crazy? And this passage says, no, you're not crazy if you belong to Christ and if you are centered on him. And this passage really helps you to get your bearings in the midst of, of, of being a minority in this world, Christians becoming increasingly a minority, at least for this time. And it really gives us two things. First of all, this passage says, remember the method by which the gospel grows. What is the method by which the gospel grows? Is it political revolution? Is it rioting? Is it rebellion? No, the primary ways by which the gospel grows are church planting and bearing witness to the truth. That is not to say there's never a place for political activism and engagement. You ought to be doing that. You ought to be representing the truth in the public square. But the primary way by which the gospel advances is church planting and gospel proclamation. The, the Christians in this passage, all they had to do to get things stirred up and moving, all they had to do was plant a church and plant another church and plant another church and start talking about Jesus and calling people away from idolatry to life in Christ. And the gospel did the rest, didn't it? It turned hearts, uh, through the, the working of the Holy Spirit, hearts were turned away from those idols. And, and the economy, uh, the economy uh, reacted to that. And people, uh, and, and Satan grabbed a hold of that and launched an attack against the gospel. 
All of this is happening not because Christians took up arms or launched some sort of violent attack, but simply because they did the countercultural work of church planting and talking to their neighbors about Jesus. And that's what we ought to primarily be involved in today. Yes, voting out of love for our neighbor. Yes, being involved in in political activity that advances the good of our neighbor. But church planting and gospel preaching, those are the primary means by which the gospel advances. Don't forget that. Don't let your frustration with the madness of the crowds tempt you to switch methods and put, put all your stock in another method. Remember our method. Second, remember the Savior. Remember the Savior we trust in. Did Jesus know anything about the madness of the crowds? Yes. Jesus knew of crowds, mobs. Think of his crucifixion. Think of the crowds that surrounded him, denied him an opportunity to speak the truth. Think of the crowds that that surged around around him with their slogans. Crucify, crucify. Think of the crowds that nailed him to the cross. Think of the madness of the crowds driven by their love for idols that put Jesus on an instrument of torture because they loved lies rather than the truth. And then think of the Savior who was vindicated who rose again in newness of life, who was publicly showed to be risen so that even the madness of the crowds, when they did their worst, could not destroy the Messiah. And then remember that this same Savior is the one that you follow today. If you follow him, living not by lies, but committed to the truth, Jesus promises that he will vindicate you And that there will be a day when when all the shouting against the gospel will come to a hush and the name of Jesus will be proclaimed as the truth. Friends, this passage is a call to live not by lies. Don't follow idols. Purge yourself of the idols in your midst. It's a call that the church be so unified in this that even the world observes and that pocketbooks are affected and that evil uh, launches a counterattack because of that fierce commitment, tangible commitment to the gospel. But this passage is also a call to trust in your Savior who faced the crowds, who knew the worst that they could do and was vindicated. You will be too if you follow him to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that when we see madness around us, that we would not become smug and pat ourselves on the back, but rather, Lord, we would be all the more earnest to purge ourselves of any falsehood in our midst, to repent and Lord, to live not by lies, but, but, but to love your truth, even when we take hits because of that. We pray, Lord, that you would show us evermore the beauty of our Savior and give us tokens of your promise that the gospel goes on. 
even when the crowds have done their worst. We pray this all with faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.